The question, does God exist, is dead. Does God exist is an obsolete question. Everyone believes in God. Years ago in the formative heyday of my growing interest with theology and philosophy, I, I really enjoyed watching these debates between Christian and atheist apologists on the existence of God. Because of the anti-intellectualist attitudes that were normative in my particular Christian tradition, it was really important for me to see the value of people, of Christians, using their cognitive faculties of reason as an expression of worship and devotion, too. I hadn't seen a lot of that in my particular tradition. In my particular tradition at the time, the primary emphasis on the way we bear witness to the world that God was real, that God exists, and the way that we bear witness to this truth we believed that Jesus is Lord was through doing the miracles Jesus and his disciples did. The implicit naturalism of our culture seemed like it needed to be countered with doses of the supernatural. At this stage in my development, which I, I actually think is fairly common or was fairly common throughout evangelicalism, even if other evangelical traditions didn't emphasize the sort of charismatic signs and wonders stuff that was normal in my particular stream, at this stage in my development, God was a supernatural being. And in order to defend the existence of this invisible supernatural being, I had to make the supernatural believable. No supernatural, no God. Watching those debates and reading the sort of standard evangelical apologetic books, those, those were actually helpful experiences. But they were helpful primarily because they served as a gateway into a much wider, deeper world of theological and philosophical reflection. Somewhere on that journey, I realized how much of this sort of defending the existence of God stuff was a total failure because I had assumed a definition of what the word God meant that may have been wrong from the start. I eventually realized that what we mean when we use the word God is the fundamental question we must address before we can even begin to have discussions about whether or not God exists or what this God may or may not be like. By setting a proper reference point to what this three-letter word is aiming at describing, the does God exist question becomes obsolete. In two ways, which I'm going to talk about in today's podcast, I believe we can say beyond a shadow of a doubt that everyone, yes, everyone believes in God. Welcome everyone, my name is Paul Anleitner. Thanks for listening to today's episode. Today's episode is made possible ad-free by the members of the Deep Talks Patreon community. You can find out more about how to get involved in that at the end of this episode. There are two ways we can define a proper reference point for what we should mean when we use the word God. 
defining the term God through these two distinct but ideally related paths isn't just necessary for discussions between people who would consider themselves theists or atheists. It's not just necessary for settling some sort of academic debate in a lecture hall between a Christian apologist philosopher and a naturalist and atheist philosopher. It's also fundamentally necessary that we define what we mean when we use the term God, even in Christian communities. It is fundamentally necessary for Christian communities to define what they mean when they use the word God in order to ensure that they're not just using the same words to describe what are actually different ideas. As one quick example, do you think that when someone, say from the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, that's the church that became famous, oh, probably, I'd say it was probably 10, 15 years ago. I don't know. Maybe it was, maybe it was later than that or sooner than that. I can't quite recall, but probably many of you are familiar with this group, the Westboro Baptist Church. That's the group you would frequently find picketing at something like an American soldier's funeral with a sign that says, God hates F-A-G-S. I don't want to say it. I don't want that clip being out there for people to repost. Um, you know, maybe that, that group, you're familiar with them. They're, they're most famous for their, um, their picketing and going around and saying who God hates and God despises. So let's take someone from that infamous Westboro Baptist Church community, and when they say that they believe in Jesus, the question that I'd ask you is, are they referring to the same Jesus as you? At what point do you reach irreconcilable beliefs about who Jesus is, so irreconcilable that you realize that the letters J-E-S-U-S that you both are using and both maybe pronouncing the same way, aren't actually referring to the same thing. The two ways we can establish a proper reference point to what the word God is aiming at is by using a metaphysical definition and an existential definition. So let's discuss why everyone has a metaphysical definition of God, why everyone has a metaphysical God. The medieval theologian Anselm of Canterbury famously wrote that God was, quote, that which we can think no higher than. Everyone from Greek philosophers like Plato and Aristotle to classical Christian theologians like Anselm and Thomas Aquinas to Muslim scholastics like the 9th century philosopher and theologian Al-Kindi all argued that God should be understood as that which is necessary for any thing, if we can use that word thing in a very crude, loose sense, for anything to exist at all. This is the classical, historic way that Theistic traditions ranging from like Muslim scholastics to Christians to even Greek philosophers 
all defined and understood what they meant when they were pointing to the word God. God is what we call the fundamental bedrock ground of all being in existence, the uncaused cause. That's not a description of God. That is what we would say is the definition of what that three-letter word means. Though the metaphysical questions like, why is there anything at all? Or say, what is it that causes there to be any reality for me to experience at all? aren't likely reflected on enough in many people's modern day lives, I truly believe that when you press people, when you press people to think about it hard enough, you'll find that people do have opinions to give on these sorts of questions. So here's a fun thought experiment, maybe a series of questions you can go through with someone, you know, a friend, even a family member. You know, someone that you're close with that you like, you know, are, are open to talking about these sorts of deep ideas. So here's a fun experiment you can walk through with somebody to help them figure out their beliefs about what their metaphysical God is. So the questions can go something like this. Those of you that have listened to this podcast over the last few years are probably familiar with some of these questions. I've, I've used them before to help us think about what we mean when we use the word God. So here's a question. You could lead them through a series of questions like this. Do you believe that something existed before you were born? Well, hopefully most people answer yes, right? So another way of, another way of thinking about that question is, so your existence isn't necessary for something to exist, right? Hopefully people readily acknowledge that before they were before they were born that there were people that existed there were humans that existed there was something else in reality that existed that they they came from parents that they were the progeny of human of a human couple before them All right that, that at a basic level should help them see that their own existence isn't necessary for something else to exist. All right, then we could go from that point. Do you believe that something existed before any of your ancestors were born? Or to word it another way, so is your family or even the existence of human beings necessary for something to exist? Let's say that you accept, as I do, that there was a time on which um, human beings as we um, know them today as homo sapiens, but even before that, um, before any of our species existed, before there was even animal life on the earth, that there was a time in which the earth, that this planet, this third rock from the sun existed before anything else existed. So if you acknowledge that, and even if you're maybe say like a you know, a young earth creationist, you, I think you could still say that there was a time, you know, if you followed a very, very literalist young earth reading of Genesis 1, which of course we've had plenty of discussions about before on this podcast. Um, but I, again, I still would invite you to learn, even if I would maybe have a disagreement with that, that's okay. That we, uh, this isn't, uh, 
you know, this isn't an issue that I think should divide us from having conversation or even being, if you're as a Christian in Christian community together, even in that reading, there would be a, uh, a recognition that there was a point in which human beings had not existed on the earth. So if that's the case, we could say that human beings aren't necessary for something to exist rather than nothing. And we could keep going through this sort of thought experiment. Theoretically, let's say that the earth was destroyed by a meteor today. That'd be a rough day. Although for some people, it might make 2020 a little better. I don't know. Would the destruction of earth mean that nothing else in reality exists? So even our planet that we live on isn't necessary for something else to exist. I mean, let's say the destruction of Earth even does something to upset the, uh, the, 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 the equilibrium of our solar system. I mean, the sun still exists. Other planets would still exist. Other uh, galaxies would exist. The universe would still exist. I would hope that we would still acknowledge that, right? There might be some that say, I don't know at that point. And they might have other reasons, sort of like a, a Rene Descartes. Well, I, I can't necessarily know anything else than I think, therefore I am. That's okay. We can address how that even brings us to a metaphysical God that that person believes in. So, and of course, we keep going back. If there was no universe, would there be nothing else that exists? If we'd said there was a point um, either before the Big Bang, maybe there's a multiverse. You keep peeling the layers of this metaphysical onion back. The point of this thought experiment is to lead someone to the point where they can't peel that metaphysical onion, the layers of that onion back any further. And you get to the point where the, they actually would say, or you would actually say, it's at this point that I say, I can't go back any further. And I'm not just talking about temporarily going back in time any further. I'm talking about this, this is necessary for the sustaining of something else, right? Um, a chair doesn't exist without, a wooden chair doesn't exist without a tree, a wooden tree, right? And that's, of course, we could think of that in a temporal sense that you have to have a wooden tree before you have a chair, but you could also think of it as a logically prior event. You do not have the wood which makes up that wooden chair without the existence of the tree. So in that sense, the wooden chair is contingent on the tree. The tree would be necessary for that chair. That doesn't mean the tree is necessary for all of existence, right? But the point is we want to get to that. Whatever, if, if all of contingent reality is a wooden chair, we want to get to what the tree is. So as you go through this thought experiment, you can figure out what people feel they believe is necessary for there to be anything at all. We figure out in these sorts of thought experiments what we believe is contingent, and we figure out in these sorts of thought experiments how to separate what we believe is contingent from what we believe is necessary for anything to exist at all. 
and what we believe is necessary is that which we think no higher than. If all of that jargon has confused you, maybe let's think about this practically, right? In some of these examples. Let's say that someone says that, uh, you know what? Uh, If I didn't exist, then nothing would exist. Maybe they have doubts. Maybe they think for some reason they are necessary for all of reality to exist, right? You might say, well, that's pretty crazy, but let's just say for a moment that you lead someone through that thought experiment. They go, hey, you know what? I don't believe that if I didn't exist that anything else would exist. Okay, so if that's the case, then if they believe that they themselves are necessary, if they believe they themselves are that which they can think no higher than, with this classical metaphysical definition, what they are saying is they believe themselves to be God. I mean, it seems pretty arrogant, but it could be a response someone gives. If someone says that they can't peel the metaphysical onion any further back than, let's say, the universe, Maybe someone comes to the point where they go, hey, you know what? The thing I'm most comfortable believing is that as we peel this onion back, that the universe or the multiverse has always existed or matter has always existed and it's existed without any prior cause. Well, then they believe that the universe is God. Again, God by definition in the metaphysical sense is that which is necessary. So in this case, the universe would be what atheists, you know, supposed atheists like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris can think no higher than. They can think no higher than the universe. They see the universe as necessary or they see matter as necessary. So in other words, the universe would be God to them. Establishing what we believe is necessary or ultimate reality is extremely important because that fundamental belief about ultimate reality, what is necessary, what God is, then provides a narrative structure to derive meaning or lack of meaning from as one probes into other essential meaning-making questions. For example, if God is mindless matter, random, chaotic in its nature, a la the universe of Harris and Dawkins, then where do standards of right and wrong come from? Is there a point or a goal that our lives and all of the universe is purposely heading towards? The implied answers to these questions that we could logically derive from a belief in This metaphysical God, the God that is a mindless universe or mindless matter, is no. That is the implied answer to those sorts of questions. No, there would be no objective basis basis for human morals, no overarching purpose to the universe. And there were people that um, believed in the universe or matter to be God, like Bertrand Russell, right? They would call them atheists. But again, my point is that it is not an absence of belief in something existing metaphysically and there being a bedrock necessary layer of reality. It's just in what they name as that bedrock necessary layer of reality. So someone like Bertrand Russell 
who names this bedrock, foundational, necessary, layer, ultimate reality, this God, as the universe or matter, readily admitted, Bertrand Russell had the courage to readily admit that there was no objective basis for human morals, no overarching purpose to the universe, and we needed to come just face to face with that. I appreciated uh, those atheists like Russell and Nietzsche of the past that had the guts to just say, hey, these are the logical implications we can derive from our belief system. In our growing secular age, you'll often hear substitute words for God. I, I love hearing these because pe- people often um, feel like they don't need to appeal to some religious high, higher power, that they feel like that's some sort of backward superstitious thing. But when you hear their language and they hear the way they use particular words, you can see that they are still actually um, appealing to a higher or highest power that they can conceive of without wanting to appear like they're expressing belief in any sort of traditional religious con- conceptions of God. So here's some examples of that, right? You might hear someone say, I, boy, I, you know, you hear it in um, political speeches frequently. Uh, politicians might say something like, as a people, we don't want to end up on the wrong side of history. What's the wrong What is history? <laughs> is history some independent, objective, all-seeing, all-knowing agency, force? Like, what does it mean to be on the wrong side of history? You might hear other people say things like this. Boy, I've, I've like, it's surprising. I've, there are people that I know that have gone through, uh, like, a deconstructing of their faith, and I'll see them post things on their, their social media feed, um, you know, what they think are like inspiring messages about, you know, the universe is for you. Or they might say things like, boy, you know, the universe smiled on me today. <laughs> I mean, what do you mean by the universe? If not referring to some God that you see as necessary, as the highest power, as that which dictates and drives and determines the outcomes of your life, the thing that grounds your very being, what else do you mean by the universe than God? You know, another fun one you might hear is someone that says something, you know, might hear a scientist, biologist, or Richard Dawkins say something like, Nature has selected certain features to increase an animal's likelihood of survival. Wait, nature selects? Like it has agency and intention? Like it's a a highest power? In this sense, nature is used as a substitute word for God. In each of these examples, there is this appeal to the existence of some highest power. In each of these cases, words like history, universe, and nature appear to even have some intentional will for the world or for you as a person. Christians may even unintentionally conceive of God as less than what this classical metaphysical definition of God has historically been. Christians may unintentionally conceive of God as merely a a supernatural force that created this universe and 
manages world affairs, interacts with people through supernatural practices like prayer, and behaves as a kind of super person with perfect moral attributes. In this case, debates about the existence of God essentially do come down to whether or not the scientifically inexplicable supernatural exists or not. And I I personally, like, I do believe that there are real things. Both of those are difficult words. They, are, they could have lots of implied definitions, but I do believe there are real things or phenomena that don't fit within the current scientific laws or scientific understanding of physics. The God of the historic Christian tradition isn't just a different kind of thing, though. This God is not just a different kind of thing or a different kind of person within the vast arena of things and people. Historically, God is an affirmation that the fundamental bedrock of reality, which everyone has some kind of belief in, is a certain kind of way. The Christian theology, the the Christian notions of God, the Christian tradition is based around what God is like, not whether or not God exists. It is more about what is, is like, than whether there is or is not. There's no denying that as you listen to this podcast, that there is an is. <laughs> that, I'm going to say that again. When you're listening, you're experiencing reality. Maybe you're driving your car as you listen to this, or you're doing some chores around the house. There is no denying that you are experiencing something. There is an is. There is existence. Maybe... Maybe this is what it means when Moses heard the voice, which claimed to be God, say, no other name for himself than I am. We cannot deny that there is an is. What we are dealing with in Christian theology is what is is like. This way of giving a specific point of reference to what we mean when we use the word God is extremely valuable to shifting the conversation between people of uh, different divergent beliefs. It's important because it helps shift the conversation away from whether or not something exists, which is an absurd thing to debate, to a dialogue about what we believe that which is necessary is like. And then, of course, the tough follow-up questions of how do we know what it is is like? It's at this level that we may find that even among Christians, that there are very different conceptions of what God is like. As in the prior example of Westboro Baptist, 
The conceptions may be so different that it may be more accurate to say that you actually believe in a different God than them. The second way we can say that everyone believes in God. Everyone has an existential God. Part of my own theological and philosophical journey led me to the transformative work of the 19th century Danish philosopher Soren Kierkegaard. At the core of Kierkegaard's message was the claim that what we believe isn't ultimately found in the propositions we may merely vocalize about doctrine or metaphysical opinions, but rather what we believe is actually expressed in how we act in the world. For Kierkegaard, to say you were a Christian didn't mean you signed off on a doctrine contract containing some objectively true claims about Jesus. To be a Christian meant that you actually followed Jesus with the totality of your life. If I claim to be a golfer, but I don't actually golf, and I haven't golfed in probably 17 years, I think, then I'm not a golfer, even if I earnestly claim out loud to believe in golf. Our real values whether we are explicitly conscious of them or not, are the values that emerge out of the real activity of our daily lives. What you do is what you value. But where do we derive our values from? What rubric do we use for determining our greater values from our lesser values? In every Career decision, financial consideration, relational interaction, we consult an internal hierarchy of values. Do I want to take a new job if it means I see my children less? Do I want to marry this person or pursue some individual aspiration that might require me to remain single? No matter what values we might claim to have, our real values emerge in those decisions, in the decision to act a particular way in the world. These values descend from a guiding story we believe about reality, and what sits atop that hierarchy of values and informs our guiding story is, in an existential sense, that which we can think no higher than. This supreme idea, this ultimate principle, this, this chief aim that we subordinate the rest of our lives under is the existential God of our lives. What else is the totality of our lives then but the worship of that God? This is why I think the ancients were more honest about their lives and their gods than we are. We've talked about this before in our Battle of the Gods episode in the Christ and Culture series. The ancients, they, they, would, they would personify their transcendent values. They would give it a name and then enshrine it in an aesthetic symbol like a statue. Let's take mammon or money, Athena, aka wisdom, or, and Mars, the god of war. The worship of these gods meant an embodiment of these ideas and values in one's life. And we may not think that in our modern day that we have idols to our gods, but if that's the case, 
Then why was the Wall Street Bull statue protected by armed guards recently during some of the social unrest that we've been experiencing? Why are people upset when a pro athlete doesn't stand and face a flag when a song is played? It's because these aesthetic symbols function just like ancient idols. They embody transcendent ideals and values. They embody the gods that we actually worship. The God of the Bible also called his people to see him not merely as some sort of metaphysical concept, an abstract concept, but to see him as their existential God. How you live is how you worship God. Let's think of the case of ancient Israel and the Old Testament. They, they frequently claimed that the God who revealed himself as I am was their God, but the existential demonstration of their devotion regularly pointed to the worship of idols instead. Let's take in the prophetic book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 1. Read that sometime. It's, it's pretty remarkable. The prophet writes that like God doesn't care about their animal sacrifices, which, you know, you know, God in the Old Testament and gives them as a way of accommodating to having some sort of meaningful expression of worship and repentance within their culture. But he just outright says, hey, I don't care about that stuff. They're even, you know, you, you'd see this in the, the NIV, the word meaningless is used. They are meaningless to God. Then God says, stop doing wrong. That's what he's looking for. It is in the totality of how the people of Israel lived their lives that they demonstrated the God they truly worship. Because everyone lives a particular way, we all live a particular way, and, and that particular way is, is aimed at our values, and our values are organized by our existential God. Everyone believes in God. It's like you could take a, somehow, if you could sum up a sum total of the things you give your daily activities to, and maybe you should do this. I started at the beginning of 2020 doing a similar process. I was reflecting on the behaviors and practices of my life, even the amount of time. I broke it down to see the amount of time I was giving things because I wanted to see whether or not the actuality of my daily life, the totality of my life, whether it was really aimed in the direction that I was claiming that it was aimed at. In theory, the metaphysical God I believe in is the God revealed in Jesus. And so what I wanted to do is actually take a look at my life. And so I went through and I actually started like totaling up on an average week. How much time do I spend on this? How much time do I spend on this? And within this sort of uh, Christian tradition, there's the affirmation that in God's guiding stories, particular good, true, and beautiful values emerge. That as we aim at those things, as long as we acknowledge that the things in and of themselves are not God, but we see them as a doorway on a continual journey and a, and a continual propensity to aim ever higher at God, we are participating in good, true, and beautiful things that God has called us to. So as I started to evaluate this, it was interesting. I, I started to realize some of the things I was saying, 
hey, I might think or claim vocally that this is a value, but in the reality of my life, this is actually my value. The amount of time you might give to exercise or to eating or to entertainment or to work. And then behind that, like, why are you working? Why are you working that particular job? Why did you make that decision? Behind all of that is an ultimate, you will find an ultimate principle. You might, you will find an ultimate guiding story that if you were to write the story backwards, starting with how you lived your life, And then deriving, boy, based on how I live my life, what is the story my life is telling? You will find out what your actual, real, existential guiding story is. And in that process, you will figure out what your existential God is, or God's plural. Again, in this sense, everyone believes in God because everyone acts a particular way in the world. Within the classical religious traditions like Judaism, Christianity, Islam, even certain schools of Hinduism, and even in Neoplatonic philosophy, the goal of life is to match the metaphysical God and the existential God. So to put it another way, what you aim the totality of your life towards as the highest principle should actually be in reality that which there is nothing higher than. If that which is necessary has a way that contingent reality and contingent agents like human beings are to be in the world, it behooves us to match to match our existential aims with this true metaphysical necessity. The true metaphysical God should be your true existential God. Anselm and Kierkegaard tied together in a three-legged race should be running in the same direction. Oddly enough, though, as many of us are aware, there there are people who claim to believe in a mindless universe as their metaphysical God, but then they, they deeply value things like rationality and coherence in their lives as an expression of their existential God. Their gods don't match. In other cases, I have seen people who claim to be metaphysical atheists or agnostics, right? They go, hey, I don't know what the, necess- the necessary bedrock foundational layer of reality is. And the thing I might be most comfortable saying is at this point, I'm going to go with just the universe or matter, right? There might be people that you encounter that have that as their metaphysical God, and yet they act more Christ-like than others who claim to believe in the triune God revealed in Jesus Christ. In these instances, I'd side with Kierkegaard if pressed with the question, well, which God do they actually believe in? Huh. And in that sense, there may be metaphysically claiming vocalized atheists that are more Christ-like than 
alleged Christians who claim propositional belief in certain claims about God. When understood correctly through the metaphysical and existential definitions, the question of does God exist becomes as ridiculous of a question as is there existence? Now, I don't think, you know, if you're to go on YouTube and pull up a debate between William Lane Craig and Sam Harris on the existence of God, I I don't think listening or watching those debates are completely worthless. I don't think, you know, some of those classic Christian apologetic books like The Evidence That Demands Verdict stuff is worthless. There's, There's worthwhile things to be gained in listening to those debates and reading books like that. But don't don't think that the existence of God is actually on the line in these debates any more than the existence of existence is on the line. To those who identify with my formative Christian experiences in the charismatic movement, I have some encouragement for you. Signs and wonders are great. I still love them. I love miraculous healings. I believe in them. I I love prophetic words. I still get prophetic dreams from time to time. I love those things. But they aren't given, these gifts aren't given to prove that God exists. Instead, they are signs of the character and nature of that which certainly is Miraculous healings are a sign pointing towards the redemptive purposes of I am. In doing all of these things, and in the continual transformation of our existence to bear the resemblance of the singular fount of all truth, goodness, and beauty, we bear witness to a story that is better than all the other stories of all the other gods. Thanks for listening to today's episode. You know, in many ways, today's episode as just even a standalone episode, not part of necessarily a larger series, is what I hope would be a a great entry point for someone that you know that is maybe wrestling with these sorts of questions about God. And I, to me, this is like, this is like my theology philosophy. This is like meaning making 101. (laughs) And so... Uh, I hope that you found it helpful and maybe even helpful enough to share with somebody else. As I said at the beginning of today's episode, this podcast can't happen without the support of the Deep Talks Patreon community. People like Tim K, Stephen M, Sean C, Sarah R, Paul R, Paul S, Michael H, Luke H, Justin T, Josie, Eli, uh, Carolyn S, BJ, those of you that have been giving at that Theology 201 level to support this work, I'm, I just can't do without you and without all of the those of you that are supporting, whether that's just even at the two buck a month or $7 a month level, I really can't do this without you. I want to keep this ad-free, um, not quite to the point where we're hitting weekly episodes. I've been trying and trying and trying. Uh, still short of our goal of 300 patrons. So if you felt like becoming someone that supported this podcast and the other 
free theological and philosophical uh, education I'm, I'm hoping to give away and to give access to people, uh, then I would invite you to follow the link in the description of this podcast to become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community again. If you just said, hey, two bucks a month, that seems really helpful. If that seems helpful to you, Paul, then that's easy enough for me to give. Boy, if we hit 300 people that, um, that were doing that, it, that would be, that'd be really helpful. So you can check out the link in the description uh, below. And I also want to invite you to participate in today's episode discussion on Patreon. We have, uh, with each one of these episodes, I'm posting a place where if people wanted to, they could have discussions right there on Patreon. Maybe it's easier than doing it within Facebook or Twitter or some other place that has like public access points for people that may chime in and you might get internet trolls and stuff like that. So you could, you could share your thoughts and reflections there, but you can feel free to reach out to me on Twitter. That's the social media place that I'm most active at. And you can find a link to connect with me on Twitter as well. I love hearing not just like, hey, this was a great podcast. Great. That's awesome to hear. But if you have objections or questions or different ways of seeing things, I'd love to hear from you as well. So again, you can reach out via Patreon if you become a member of the Deep Talks Patreon community, or you can reach out on Twitter. I respond to everything on Patreon. I try my best on Twitter. And finally, if you just said, hey, I'd like to support, uh, I thought this episode was helpful for me today, and I'd like to just give something as a thanks, there's a link in the description of this podcast as well for you to give if you said, hey, I want to give a one-time donation or thanks, Paul, for this. Cool. I'd love to, <laughs> I'd love to receive that as well. Again, reach out to me. I'd love to hear from you all. And until next time, we'll talk again soon.